That's page uh, 716 in the Church Bible. Psalm 136. This psalm is very distinctive in the Word of God because it has a a constant refrain that runs through it every second verse. Oh, give thanks to God, to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. O give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. To him who by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. To him who laid out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endures forever. To him who made great lights, for his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endures forever. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his mercy endures forever. To him who struck Egypt in their firstborn, for his mercy endures forever, and brought out Israel from among them, for his mercy endures forever, with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, for his mercy endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his mercy endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his mercy endures forever, but overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his mercy endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his mercy endures forever. And slew famous kings, for his mercy endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his mercy endures forever. And Og, the king of Bashan, for his mercy endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his mercy endures forever, a heritage to Israel his servant, for his mercy endures forever. Who remembered us in our lowly state, for his mercy endures forever, and rescued us from our enemies, for his mercy endures forever who gives food to all flesh, for his mercy endures forever. O give thanks to the God of heaven, for his mercy endures forever. And the words of our text, unsurprisingly, in verse 1, a call to all of us to give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. It seems right to be uh, thankful, particularly thankful, when we can all gather as we do in the house of God today. 
I've often heard people say that they are uh, thankful for the situation that now prevails, but very few, if anybody, seems to really mention who they are thankful to. Uh, People seem to have a feeling of gratitude, uh, but gratitude must be to somebody or to something. Thankfulness must be addressed to somebody for the good that we enjoy. But people just seem to feel that a general sense of gratitude will do, or a general sense of feeling good, because although a pandemic came, it seems at least to be gone, and we have a relative measure of freedom. Now, you may too uh, be thankful for that, but thankful to whom? And how would you express it? Just like people say, well, I'm grateful that I've had good health all my life. Grateful to whom? That you've had good health all your life. Well, um, let's look at this psalm as a psalm psalm that calls us to gratitude. It's impossible to miss the theme of the psalm. Some psalms have a chorus. In fact, quite a considerable number of psalms have a chorus or a refrain, which occurs quite often throughout the song. We must never forget that the psalms are essentially songs. Most of them have choruses. The unusual thing about this chorus is that it occurs so constantly. It doesn't just appear two or three times in the psalm, but in every second line. You have the constant refrain that his mercy endures forever. So obviously you're meant to get the message. You're you're meant to really get the message that gratitude to God is an important thing. The psalm may originally have been sung, possibly sung by the Levites in an antiphonal way. Maybe one group sang the second line just after another group sang the first. It is quite possible that it was done that way, but it doesn't matter. You can't read or sing this psalm without being struck by the constant refrain, the constant emphasis, gratitude to God. Praise God for his mercies. His mercies I will ever sing. Give thanks to him because his mercy endures forever. God's mercy, like his grace, is his favor to the undeserving. It's his favor to the undeserving in relation to their sin. So God's grace comes to us um, simply in any way that he helps us. But in connection with sin, it is his mercy, because he forgives that sin, and he forgives it for Christ's sake. He has dealt with it himself. He has dealt with it in the person of his own son. And therefore, the greatest gift or the greatest grace that we can receive is, of course, mercy. We saw that last Sabbath evening. When we come to pray and pray with confidence, we come to the throne of grace where we find, remember, first mercy and then every other grace to help us in our times of need. I think it's fair to say, though, that the word mercy itself in the Scripture um, widens out a little bit from that. In other words, it isn't, it isn't just confined to God forgiving what we have done wrong. 
it actually widens out to pretty much become interchangeable with grace. In other words, everything that God sees fit to give us in spite of our sin. And uh, very often we speak like that. We use the word, uh, the mercies of God for everything that he gives you. For example, let's say you say grace or uh, your mother or father says grace in the home with you. They will perhaps thank God for his mercies on the table. Now, of course, that has no direct relationship to your sin, but it most certainly has an indirect one because this grace that you receive of food is a mercy in the sense that it has come to you as a sinner and you are undeserving of it. So that's what I mean by the word mercy, widening out in the Bible to cover essentially God's grace. It basically grows into his goodness to us as undeserving sinners. Now, in the psalm, we're called to be thankful for it. And the psalm opens by calling on us three times to be thankful for it, just in the most general sense. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His mercy endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his mercy endures forever. And then again, that same uh, emphasis appears right at the close of the psalm. In the most general sense, give thanks to the God of heaven, for his mercy endures forever. Now, in between those two calls, at the beginning and at the end of the psalm, which are very clear and plain, we have a series of things that God has done for which we should give specific thanks. And certainly when you read them the first time, or indeed the second and third time, these statements appear quite random and quite disconnected. One minute he's talking about God making the great lights in the heavens. Next minute, he's dividing the Red Sea in two. Next minute, he is slaying Og, the king of Bashan. Then he is giving the land to Israel. There doesn't seem to be an obvious connection between all these things. But there is a connection. And it's a connection that's very important for ourselves to understand and to practice. What really ties these statements together is verse 4 itself, which begins the real substantial part of the psalm. The call to give thanks in verses 1 to 3, it's a threefold call. Then in verse 4, that thankfulness is especially addressed to him, that is the Lord of lords, the God of gods, who alone does great wonders. It then goes on to itemize the wonders, the creation of heaven and earth, the striking of Egypt, the overthrow of Pharaoh, and so on. So really, the theme of the psalm is gratitude to God for the great wonders that he has accomplished. And, as the text reminds us, he accomplished them alone. Alone. So this is gratitude to God for things which he himself 
has done directly on their behalf, directly on your behalf, directly on my behalf too. Now again, just by way of introduction, these great wonders are divided into two groups, and they're of unequal length. The the first group of wonders just consists in his acts of creation, and that is covered from verse 5 down to verse 9. The second group of wonders focuses on God's work of redemption, and that stretches right down from verse 10 down to verse 25. And then the psalm closes as it began with a simple call to give God thanks. So the great works of God here in the psalm are his works of creation and redemption. Creation and redemption. Let me say a little about the first, and I want to major with you on the second. First of all, we give thanks for God, the great creator, who, leaving out the chorus, made the heavens, laying out the earth above the waters, making great lights, the sun ruling by day, and the moon and stars ruling by night. Now, in the Bible, the creation of all things is, of course, God's work. We're told that he brought all things into being, ex nihilo, from nothing, by the word of his power. Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 2, remind us that the world that exists was not fashioned out of pre-existent material, which is, of course, the belief of materialism. Uh, Materialism believes that everything was always there. Uh, Universal evolutionary theory is the belief that everything that exists just somehow morphed into what it is from something that already existed before. But Hebrews 11.2 tells us that it's of the essence of faith in God to believe that that is not the case, that there is nothing that had eternal existence except God himself. By faith, the writer says, we understand, this is Hebrews 11 verse 2, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are were not made of things that exist. Now, that's a a wonderful divine blow against a materialistic philosophical theory. Things have not always been there. Things came into being by the creative divine fiat, by the word of God, and by faith we believe that as something revealed to us. That's why in the scriptures the creation itself is seen as an evidence of God. It demonstrates, Paul tells us, his eternal power and his Godhead or his deity, if you like, his godness, the very thing that makes him God. What Paul means by saying that in Romans 1 is that he says, when you look up at the heavens, you are immediately struck with power, that is eternal power and deity. In other words, you are not simply conscious of force, 
you are conscious of intelligence and force, intelligent force, intelligent design. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So much so that both David in Psalm 19 and Paul in Romans 1 tell us effectively that the whole creation itself is enough to leave you without witness, enough to leave you without excuse before God. There is no excuse for atheism because of the world outside as well as the world inside, inside your own heart and mind and conscience. Psalm 19 tells us that the signature of God is written in heaven. In other words, uh, well, when people make a work of art, they frequently sign it. Um, David tells us, and the interesting expression that he uses in the Hebrew in Psalm 19, he tells us that the heavens are the signature of God. God has written his name in the heavens, eternal power and Godhead. That's what I mean when I often say to you that atheism is an acquired doctrine. It is a learned position. Whereas theism, the belief in God, is an innate position. It is instinctive to you. The child instinctively believes in God, but has to learn atheism from you. But the remarkable thing is that creation itself is not so much the focus in this psalm, but there's a, a zooming in immediately on the work of the fourth day, where God made great lights, the sun ruling by day, and the moon and stars ruling by night, verses 7 through to 9. Now, by ruling here, all that's meant is just that the sun dominates the day sky, and the moon and the stars dominate the night sky. And I suppose the question arises, why does he focus on them in connection with gratitude to God? Would it not have been more obvious just to focus on creation generally? Well, maybe in one way it would. He does mention, after all, in verse 6, that he laid out the earth above the waters, as well as in verse 5, that he made the heavens. But as I said, in verses 7, 8, and 9, it is the sun and the moon and the stars. But the reason why he mentions them is because of something written in Genesis, Genesis 1, 14. We're told that the primary function of the sun and the moon and the stars is for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. That's why they function there. They function for us, in other words, to separate seasons, days, and years to function as signs for us in heaven. In other words, the cosmos is, after all, geocentric, and it is what you would call anthropocentric. It is man-centered. The focal point of the universe is very much the earth. And God has brought these celestial beings into existence for your sake and for mine. As a testimony to his eternal power and his Godhead, 
but also as a testimony in connection with his kindness and his love and his care for yourself. Not only does he say, I am the great God of power who made these things and who made you, but I am the God of great power who wields that power in heaven and earth for your benefit. The sun and the moon and the stars are millions and billions and trillions of miles away. The stars are, if not the sun and the moon. Many of the stars are. But they function there for your benefit. They are for you. The most remote light that you see in the sky is for your benefit. By the grace of God, we now know that there are stars we cannot see. But the fact that we know them to be there is also for your benefit. It is God's way of assuring you that the immense power that brought all these things into being is still for signs and seasons, for days and for years, for you. The power of God is something that we thought of last Sabbath day. The mighty power that works in us, which Paul calls the mighty power that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. The mighty power that called into being the things which are from things which are not. And God wants you to know that that is available for you. It is on your side. It is already lodging in your breast and it can be released in ever greater capacity. The power of God is staggeringly incomprehensible. When you even think of the power that is involved in making a cosmos, you then reduce the cosmos to its, to its smallest parts. When you go down to the fields of atoms and quarks and so on, and people thought that when you, when you came to an atom, you, w- you would come essentially to something a bit like a, a billiard ball, just a, a small thing that is inert, basically, with nothing inside it. Then people discover that inside it is a factory that is as complicated as the universe is itself. It's almost the universe in microcosm. But lo and behold, what a staggering power it contains, too. You split the atom. And what happens when an atom is split? What power is unleashed? In other words, the vast power that is communicated to you by the idea of a vast cosmos is then made a million times more great by the fact that splitting the tiniest part of it unleashes something that's incomprehensible too. The power of God. And the power of God on your behalf. It is a remarkable thing to say that God is with me, and if God is for me, who can be against me? But you know what that involves? That involves moving every single particle in the universe in a way that ensures that you will escape hell, death, sin, and condemnation, that you will make it on the precise path that God has foreordained for you until you arrive home in glory. And Every single particle of the universe is so arranged in place as to facilitate that. You understand that? Do we realize that? Do we we just apprehend it, even if we can't comprehend it? Can we touch it? Can we lay hold of what God does in arranging everything in the universe for your benefit? There's a way in which that might make people proud. It makes the Christian very humble. How could it not? 
Give thanks to God for a, an anthropocentric universe. Give thanks to God that he ordains everything, even the sun and the moon and the stars, for your benefit, for your well-being. But there's another thing, too. God's greatest wonder is not his first creation, marvelous as it is. His greatest wonder or his greatest mighty act is his work of redemption. Not making everything, but remaking everything. Not creating everything, but recreating everything. Behold, John says in the book of Revelation, a new heaven and a new earth. Yes, he sees that after he sees the existing heaven and earth rolled away like a scroll. I mean, think of that. According to the way the Bible is written, those who are alive when the Lord returns will begin to see the dissolution of the existing universe and the heavens receding like a scroll. In parallel, in conjunction with the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a conception that the cosmos is starting to fall apart because God melts it. This earth, first of all, came out of a a molten ball. It will go back into that. He will burn everything with a fervent heat. In Second Peter chapter 3, we're told that the elements shall be consumed or loosened with fervent heat. I mentioned that recently. Uh, we, I was preaching on that, and it's a very technical expression used because the elements are mingle together to form what we have in this life. Uh, elements mingle uh, to form th- just the building blocks of, of this world. But, but God melts them. He separates everything. He loosens them and he melts them with a fervent, unimaginable heat. A destruction of the first cosmos. But not total. Because God doesn't actually uncreate what he has made. There is no such thing as a a non-creation. What God does is recreate, refashion, and remold. And out of the ashes of the existing cosmos, God builds a new one, which contains an earth too. Behold, a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. The same, but different full of glory and beauty and holiness. The original creation was like that, of course, but this one even more so. And the actual beginning point of that creation, the new heavens and the new earth, is something that has already happened. The beginning point of it is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the alpha point of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, there's a big gap between that beginning point and when the major part of that work is is accomplished, but that's where it started. That's why the ancient Sabbath, by the way, was moved from its ancient position as the seventh day at the close of the first creative week to the first day of the week. A reminder to us that new creation has already begun. If we are Christians, that new creation has come into our own hearts. 
we are already part of it. As Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. And the Sabbath reminds us that we now stand on resurrection ground. The Sabbath is a message to all of us today telling us that this world as it exists is finished. It's over. It's under the judgment of God. It's doomed. It's damned. It's condemned. I mean, a, a pandemic can rush through the nations, and the one that we've had is nothing. It's nothing. It hasn't left its millions and its millions in its wake like something like the Black Death did, or even the 18 million that punished with the, perished with the Spanish flu after the First World War. But these things are reminders to us that we're in a fallen world. The nice word people use to describe it is broken. But it's broken because it's fallen. And because it's fallen, it's cursed. And unless you escape this world and become part of the new creation, you'll perish with it. You'll perish with it. So far exceeding in glory the first creation is the second creation that God has made, is making already begun with the resurrection and brought to completion with the new heaven and the new earth. Now, this great work of redemption is brought before us here in three vivid pictures from the Old Testament. Three vivid pictures from the Old Testament taken from the history of Israel and her deliverance. And these three pictures cover different parts of our redemption. If I was going to say to you what it means to be redeemed, you could say to me, well, it means to be delivered, to be preserved, and to enter into rest. That's your full redemption. I mean, here I am and here you are by nature, bound, cursed. Um, Slaves to sin, therefore slaves to death, Now, if God's going to redeem us from that, he is going to deliver us from that. He's going to preserve us in that deliverance and to place us in an everlasting rest where we cannot be in bondage ever again. Those are the three things that are brought before us in the passage. God delivering Israel, preserving Israel, and bringing Israel into rest. Let's take, first of all, the deliverance. In verse 10, right down uh, to verse 14, verse 15, sorry. The emphasis here is on the exodus. Let's read it again, verse 10 to 15, without the chorus. Give thanks to him who struck Egypt in their firstborn, who brought out Israel from among them with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, dividing the Red Sea in two, making Israel pass through it, and overthrowing Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. The Exodus. Give thanks for the Exodus. The Exodus is the great Old Testament picture of Christ redeeming us. And if, if you know the events of the Exodus, you'll know that it's dominated by two great events. The Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. 
And in both these events, God is at work. God alone, doing his great wonders by his own right hand, by his arm of power, delivering his people and judging their enemies. First of all, the Passover in verse 10. He struck Egypt in their firstborn. That's judgment. And then deliverance. He brought out Israel from amongst them. Striking Egypt in their firstborn was the culmination of the plagues. It was the tenth of ten plagues. After it, Pharaoh relented and delivered the people of God. And then in verse 11, God took out Israel from among them. He brought them out and set them free from Israeli, from the Egyptian tyranny. And then he took them to the Red Sea with his strong hand and his outstretched arm. In verse 13, he divides the Red Sea in two, that's his judgment. And his deliverance in verse 14, he makes Israel pass through the midst of it. So God is saving and judging in the Passover and in the Red Sea. Let me just make a couple of points in connection with that. First of all, the Passover and the Red Sea belong together. There, there are two, two things that you, you need to understand as belonging together. The Passover, the, the slaying of the Lamb, is the legal ground of Israel's deliverance. They've got no right to get out of Egypt. There's no exit from delivery and from bondage unless the lamb is slain. The substitutionary lamb must be slain and its blood placed on every household. Only if the lamb is killed and only if the blood is applied to your house is your house saved. Only if it's applied personally to your heart is your heart saved. That is the legal ground of deliverance. You'll notice that on that night, the gods of Egypt are judged. That's what the Bible tells us, that the plagues were judgments upon the gods of Egypt. <clears throat> That's too complicated to go in just now. I, ho I hope I'll go into it perhaps in the not-too-distant future. But the plagues that came on Egypt to do with frogs and flies and blood and darkness and so on, they're all to do with Egyptian gods and the power of their gods. Once you understand the elaborate system of worship that the Egyptians had and the various gods that they called upon, you understand exactly why God gave them a plague of frogs and a plague of flies and hail and darkness and so on. So the gods were judged and at the same time a lamb was slain. That is the foundation of their deliverance. So what part does the Red Sea play? Well, if the Passover is a legal opening out, the Red Sea is the actual opening out. As long as that sea representing death and its power was there, they could never get out. But God divided it, and he divided it with his own outstretched arm so that they experienced deliverance. They had the right to be delivered the moment that lamb was slain and the blood applied 
to their households, but they were actually delivered once they crossed the sea and Pharaoh and his host were slain. Deliverance from the condemnation of sin and deliverance from the power of sin in your life. Now, you know that as a Christian, you felt these two things. You're here today as a Christian, a free man or a free woman, because you know that Christ Jesus died for you. That's the legal ground of your freedom. You were purchased, but you experienced that purchase when the Holy Spirit applied that to your life. And you're free. You are no longer under the dominion of sin and death and hell. You're free. Free men and free women. Now, um, like I say, at the heart of this deliverance is a lamb slain. No redemption without a lamb slain. No escape from Egypt without a lamb slain. No opening of the Red Sea without a lamb slain. No wilderness, no promised land, nothing without a lamb slain. Christ took our sins. Christ destroyed the one who had the power of death over us. He destroyed principalities and powers in the cross. He delivered us from the grip of the evil one, taking us out of the house of Egypt or out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Now, if Exodus was a reason for Israeli gratitude, is that Exodus not a reason for your gratitude? Today, if you are free from the condemning power of sin and from its destructive power in your life, you're being liberated from that bit by bit, is that not a reason to be grateful? Is that not a reason to be supremely grateful? Is it not a reason to give God thanks every day you rise and every night before you go to bed? Not for things, not for gifts, not just for food or for drink, but that you are saved by the power of God. So even if you're cold and naked and starving and destitute, you've still got this. Suppose you are a beggar like Lazarus, at the gate of the rich man with nothing, nothing at all, you would have reason to praise God and thank him because this is the case. You're free. You're free. Free from sin and death and hell. And if you knew what sin, death, and hell really were, you'd be glad to be free of it. If you had the sense this morning as an unbeliever to know how destructive sin and death and hell are, you would want this freedom and you would value this freedom. Do you understand what it is to be not a believer, to be still in your sins, under a sentence of death and going to hell? Going to hell? Can you sit easy with that? Can you just live life your own way going to hell? What a reason to be grateful that God struck with his own right hand the power that was against you, took you out, divided the Red Sea, and gave you liberty, 
made you pass through it so that you are now free. Free. Again, you'll notice that the Passover and the Red Sea are both God's doing. That was the, 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 remember the key text that took us into the body of the psalm was verse 4, to him who alone does great wonders. Now, the alone is important there. The things for which we really give God thanks are things that come so directly from himself. Things that he accomplished. Verse 13, verse 12, sorry, with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm. Strong hand and outstretched arm. The plagues were God's doing. The, the Passover is God, God's doing. For ourselves, too, the same is true. He saved you. He called you. He elected you. He loved you with an everlasting love. In the process of time, he touched your heart with his Holy Spirit, changed and transformed you. He did. If I ask any true Christian in here today who saved you, you'll say, God saved me. If I ask you what part did you play in that yourself, well, you say, well, well, I believed in him. But if I say to you, who gave you that power? You'll say, God did. I know, I know that I was in such a situation that, that nothing could extricate me out of it. Nothing at all. There was nothing I could do except the one who just stretched his hand and laid hold on you, touched your heart, changed your heart, um, gave you belief, gave you faith, gave you a new song to sing, and so on, by his great power and by his outstretched arm. So as part of redemption, God's given you deliverance. The second part of redemption is preservation. And this takes Israel away from the Exodus and into the wilderness. You'll notice at verse 16, the journey begins. You have the deliverance out of his Egypt and then the journey in verse 16. To him who led his people through the wilderness. And in process, in verse 17, he strikes down kings, including verse 19, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and verse 20, Og, the king of Bashan. The wilderness journey <clears throat> has giants too. Pharaoh was a problem, obviously, and Pharaoh's army was a problem, but in God's typology in the Old Testament, they're finished with. Pharaoh's gone, the army's gone. That, that is the defeat of principalities and powers and your liberty now as a Christian. You're in the wilderness. Now, you would expect in the wilderness, making your way through this world, that all your enemies have gone, but lo and behold, they're back. They come in the form of Philistines or Midianites or Amorites or here, Og, the king of Bashan, and Sihon, the Amorite. Now, these are both giants. Gigantism is a condition that still exists in the world. It's a particular genetic abnormality. But skeletal remains from times past tell you that gigantism was uh, a significant uh, condition amongst the human population long ago. Science, Og of Bashan's bed here, the Bible tells us that it was kept by the Ammonites for years and years and years. It was 13 foot by 6. 
I should have converted that into metric measurements. I still think in feet and inches, but you children can ask your parents to measure out 13 feet by six because that was the size of bed that this man slept in. Og of Bashan himself had rule over 60 cities, we're told in Deuteronomy 3, as well as rural areas. And we know the fear that the people of God had in confronting these giants. The sons of Anak were in Hebron. Og of Bashan was in a commanding position in Bashan and so on. Sihon, the king of Amorites, the same. They were afraid of the giants. You'll remember that that fear was so great that when Israel was on the cusp of entering the promised land, they, they rebelled and didn't go in. Only Joshua and Caleb, only Joshua and Caleb with Moses believed that they could conquer the giants. And because of their unbelief, God condemned them to a 40-year wandering in the wilderness. So that a journey which could have been accomplished in two weeks took 40 years to be accomplished because of their unbelief. But the writer here focuses in on the giants just to remind us that on your wilderness journey, however great the problems that confront you, God will deal with them. God will deal with them. It doesn't matter what form the giant takes, in what way he stalks through your soul, God will deal with him. Now, the powers that are active against us are, are really huge. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Um, we, we become aware, in fact, on our journey through this wilderness of, of the principalities and the powers. And God tells us to take his whole armor that we might be able to withstand in the evil day, the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the belt of truth or truthfulness around about us, particularly the shield of faith to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one, which we hold out as a body shield, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Arm yourself, and these giants will be brought low. And this psalm reminds us that in our journey, we will be kept by the same power that took us onto it in the first place. Are you converted today? Did you escape sin? Did you escape the power of the devil? Was your life turned and changed and transformed? Well, so it will remain that way because the God who slew the Pharaoh and drowned his army is the same God with you in the wilderness who slays Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. As you go through the wilderness, you will be kept from evil. And you'll be provided with good too. When Israel was in the wilderness, they sometimes uh, missed what they had in Egypt. Uh, the cucumbers and the garlic and the leeks and the melon. These things, they remembered the fish. Uh, it's a pathetic part of Scripture that, I mean pathetic in the literal sense of the term. It's, it's amazing that... Um, that a delivered people should be so ungrateful as that, you know. How ungrateful could you be 
to, to escape the lash and the bondage and the mud huts and knee-deep in mud, making bricks without straw, exhausting labor morning till evening. How unthankful could you be escaping that and then complaining that you didn't have access to certain foodstuffs that you used to have then? When God was miraculously sending bread from heaven and when water from the rock was following them day by day, how unthankful! Are you any different? Am I any different? How often do you moan and complain about what you could have had, what others maybe have, what you used to have that you don't have anymore? Complaining? Complaining when we have bread from heaven and water from the rock? It's always easier to be thankful for what you see than for what you don't see. But we're kept and preserved in countless ways. There are temptations lying to hand that would have destroyed you long ago. There are trials that would have absolutely submerged you. There are attacks from the evil one that God hindered him from coming to you with. I know that sometimes the devil's attacks can be fiery, but have you any idea what God's kept back? Any idea what God's kept back? I know God unleashed a fury and a storm on Job. But bad as it was, it could have been worse. God still kept him, and God still preserved him. Kept. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. And your right hand will save me. And what's more, the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy endures forever. Psalm 138. You almost feel it's been stuck on with the same theme. Your mercy endures forever. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. And you will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. And the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. If that's true, how about being thankful for it? How about being thankful for it? That matters more than meat and garlic and onions. The third part of their redemption was their rest. In verse 21, not only did God save them from their enemies, but he gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant, who remembered us in our low estate and who rescued us from our enemies. I know that when Israel went to the land of promise, the warfare continued. That's because one type is overtaken by another. But sticking to the type we have here, the rest is our heavenly rest. And the land of Canaan is a symbol of where God is calling us to, where there is everlasting rest. God's bringing you home, and your deliverance isn't complete until you arrive home. What's more, we can go further and say it's not complete until your body arrives home when even your body will be released from decay, marvelously reconstituted with the same DNA code 
God will use the same building blocks, the same intelligent code to rebuild your body, free of imperfections, genetic abnormalities, every kind of infirmity and disease, because when he bore our infirmities, he bore them too. It's not just our sins he bore. He bore your sicknesses. You say, well, he bore my sickness. How can he bear my sickness? Because I've got my sickness. Yes, but you haven't got it forever. You're going to lose your sickness. You can call it terminal if you like. You're losing it. One day it'll be gone and your body will wear that no more. You can't say that as an unconverted person. Sad to say your body will one day carry sicknesses that you've never dreamed of. But for the Christian, you will be free of them forever. Give thanks to God because he gives Canaan as your inheritance and a heritage to Israel, his servant, forever. And as that land belonged to that people, so the new heaven and the new earth belongs to God's people. A new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Can I just very quickly say a couple more things just before I close? The things for which you need to be most thankful are the things that never change in your life. The things that never change. Peter told us to rejoice, and you can't rejoice in something you're not thankful for. Thankfulness comes before rejoicing. So if you're going to rejoice in something, you must already be thankful for it. He tells us that we rejoice in these things, that God has begotten you to a living hope, that you have an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, that it's kept in heaven for you, and that you are kept by the power of God through faith until salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even if now you are grieved by trials. Listen to that. In this you rejoice, though now you have trials. So whatever your trial doesn't change that. Nothing changes your election. Nothing changes your justification. Nothing changes your sanctification. Nothing changes your glorification. Nothing changes the wealth of your heavenly bank account. Nothing changes that. So you rejoice in that. The second thing to remember is that gratitude doesn't come naturally to us. In fact, when Paul in Romans 1 describes the sad declension of mankind from one sin to another, you know that right at the beginning of that long list of awful sins, which seem to get worse and worse and worse, right at the head of them pretty much he places ingratitude. Neither were they thankful, but changed the glory of God into the glory of a a corruptible beast and so on. Neither were they. They knew him not as God, neither were they thankful. Isn't that astonishing? Ingratitude doesn't come naturally. And last of all, if it doesn't come naturally, how do you get it? Well, obviously it comes spiritually which means it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. So how do you get it? Well, first of all, pray for it. If you're an ungrateful person here today, and and you know, I suppose, if you are or not, if you're ungrateful, fundamentally ungrateful, pray for gratitude. But even more than that, I would say, practice gratitude. 
practice gratitude. How do you practice gratitude? Well, just by thinking about what you've got. David tells us in Psalm 40 to count our blessings, to realize that they are more than can be numbered. And you only realize the the good things God gives you when you actually sit down and think about them. And if you don't, you won't. What, what you'll do is you just think about the bad things in your life until you sit down and start itemizing the kindnesses that God is showing you today as an undeserving person. Take them off. Think about them. Make a long list, and you'll find that you, that you just won't come to an end. And one reason that's important, and I'm closing with this, is that your gratitude is so related to your contentment. Are you content today? Well, you're not if you're ungrateful, because contentment comes from gratitude. Gratitude doesn't come from contentment. You're not content first and then grateful. You're grateful first and then content. Do you hear that? That's, that's the order these things are in. You're not content first and therefore grateful. You are grateful first to God and then you'll be content. If, if you learn to itemize and thank God for the good in your life, you will realize that there's too much there to enumerate and you will be content. Supposing you've just got food and clothing at its basic level, therewith you will be content. So this psalm tells you to thank God who moves heaven and earth on your behalf every single day of life. You have a, a cosmos that is focused on your well-being and your deliverance and thank him for your deliverance from sin and death and hell, your preservation through this wilderness and the everlasting rest that can never be taken from you. If that's not a reason for gratitude, I honestly don't know what is. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, shine upon us with your face. Make us to know your favorable countenance. Take away from us a spirit of discontent and ingratitude. Help us to reflect on the goodness of God and all you have done for us in life and still doing and all you have promised to do for us yet. And may that humble us greatly realizing how undeserving we are of even the least of these mercies. Give thanks to God, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Amen. Just in conclusion, we can read Psalm 68. We'll hear it sung to the tune Newington. Page 303 in the psalm book at verse 18. Paul tells us in the New Testament that again this is a picture of Christ's ascension into heaven. Thou hast, O Lord, most glorious, ascended up on high, and in triumph victorious led captive captivity. There's a 
an ambiguity about these words, but I think the reference is to the fact that he's led his own people who were captives. Uh, he's led them captive to himself. There's, the flip side is also true. Thou hast received gifts for men, for such as did rebel. These are the gifts that he's giving us. Yea, even for them, for rebels, that God the Lord in midst of them doth might dwell. Blessed be the Lord, who is to us of our salvation God, who daily, daily with his benefits, us plenteously doth load. Now that's the truth. And that's the truth we need to recognize and for which we need to give thanks. Daily with his benefits, us plenteously doth load. Before um, we receive uh, God's blessing, can I, just in case you don't know already, but if you could make sure that the people in the gallery leave first and uh, just use the stair and the exit by which you came in as you're leaving. So the people in the gallery leave first and the, the deacons will tell those downstairs when uh, the gallery is clear. And those who are downstairs, if you leave just as, as you left before, in other words, you go out the entrance that's nearest to you on the, on the aisle in which you are. So gallery first and then downstairs. Let's stand to receive God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.